Okay, everybody, let's, uh, thank you all for coming. Just amazing what bad weather does for attendance in here, you know, so it's great to see everybody back. So we're going to uh, start with Paige on our devotional, and then uh, Kurt's going to do a thank you for, this is, I'm going to rename this the cookie class, between what we've gotten from them and what we're doing for you, it's great, so let's give Paige our attention. Oh, I gotta turn you on right, here. So yes. on. I got you. <laughs> I got You've you. done this before. You did great. I get really nervous, so I'm just telling you. <sighs> so I have been reflecting on the waiting in the Bible. There is a lot of it in the Old Testament and New. There is story after story in the Old Testament. Of Noah, Job, Abraham, Israelites waiting for the promised land. And in the New Testament, we just read about Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Jesus' command to the disciples to sit here while I pray for the wait of Jesus' return. And as I reflect on this, it's like, would I, could I, have the ability to dutifully wait. Waiting has been something of a personal challenge and journey for me. We all wait for the minor stuff, the traffic, the bus, the grocery line for Friday. But back in 85, I was looking at my watch so frequently to get to the end of day that I realized I was wasting the day. I was not doing a good job of waiting, and as a symbolic gesture, I took off my watch for good. And while I realized I needed a new job, I also saw the need to work on waiting. I just needed help with the process to be able to wait with intent, watchfulness, and expectation, and to use my time wisely. And then, besides the minor and little stuff, there's the bigger waiting. We wait for physical and mental healing in ourselves and in others. We wait for spiritual healing in ourselves and in others. We wait for relationships to grow, to repair, to improve, to heal. We wait for opportunity in our jobs and community And we wait to get to the other side of failure, of struggle, of grief. I'm about to cry. We wait to get to the other side. Of God's silence. Even though I grew up with all good things take time and Rome was not built in a day, there have been times when I have not been willing to wait. And I have just barreled ahead with my agenda, my imperfect knowledge, my imperfect timing to try to make things happen. And I am so grateful that I have been saved from myself and this impatience by the good Lord. 
prayer, study, faith-filled, and faithful friends, family, and church groups have all been a support through this lifelong journey. Study about those through the Bible who, through their faithful waiting, have prepared the way for our faith has been helpful. Scripture and reading has also been a support. There's Isaiah 40:30. We must be quiet and wait on the direction of his presence. Psalm 27. Wait on the Lord, be strong and of good courage. And then there's Second Peter who says, For with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So I looked to scripture and a book that has has and is helpful for me is a book Waiting by Ben Patterson. And so as I'm sort of moving to my close here, I wanted to share some thoughts that he has in this book. Um, at least as important as the things we wait for is the work God wants to do in us as we wait. The success in our waiting lies not in who we are, but in who God is. And then finally, we must learn to place all of our little waitings within the context of the large waiting, the waiting for God's redemption of his fallen creation, which we realize through Jesus' sacrifice. So in closing, again referencing Patterson, he says, It is not about us waiting at all. It is about God waiting on us. Waiting on us to catch up to his great plan and trust in him. So, may we pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your unceasing love for your patience with us as we learn to wait, and for your gift of community that supports us through our waiting. Trusting in your perfect knowledge, timing, and power, may we live with intent, expectancy, hope, and peace that only you can provide. Amen. So in addition to being very good, I always love to hear a Southerner's accent, a fellow Southerner's accent. And you'll notice this. I took mine off about 20 years ago, too. I don't wear a watch either. So uh, so there's some, some commonality there. So. Right. There's always, now you got your phones, and, you know, there's a clock in almost every room. So, you know, but... So that's the same thing. I just found like I was doing that all the time. Oh, your mother died. I'm sorry. You know, that's just not very good. So anyway, uh, so Kurt, come on up. So. Fortunately, I haven't learned the lesson on the, on the watch thing, but uh, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for the for the cookie uh, that we got back there. I mean, it's like 90 dozen, and uh, it really helps me a lot when you're trying to accumulate 2,500 dozen. Uh, but uh, the biggest thing about it is is it's not it's the secret ingredient in the cookies, and that's the love, the agape love. And I can tell you as soon as I'm standing here, 
that those are magic cookies because of that. That opens the door for us to do our work. It's just a cookie, but many of those guys have never had a home-baked cookie, and they certainly haven't had it since they've been in there. So, and some, and they don't understand why people would take the time to bake homemade cookies for them, because you know their self-esteem is pretty low. But thank you for that. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for for helping me cook those cookies. My wife thanks you. Our, 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 our mixer thanks you, and our oven thanks you too. So thank, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, so this this will be, uh, I mean, this is actually a good lesson because of, there we go, all right, because of uh, not only waiting, we'll see, we're going to spend a lot of time today on the parable of the prodigal son because it's so classic, and uh, there's certainly an element of waiting in there. Uh, and there's also, with Luke, just the reaching out to the least, the last, and the lost, and we're going to see a little bit of that too. So... Um, so let's, uh, on the handout I've got, the, there's a, there's really three, three things that we have said about Luke all the way along. Uh, and we'll get to see each of them a little bit today. But one is of, of, certainly of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the, the true artisan, the, art, the most artistic writer. And, and it's just, you know, the, the amount of music and beauty in his writing. Uh, and, and very, very good writing is, is evident. Uh, he does have this theme of the least, the last, and the lost. And if we, uh, I usually choose to do the parable of the prodigal son in here, the equally famous parable that is, that could equally be taken almost word by word and, and demonstrated is, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, uh, just the hint upon that is that if you, um, if you remember when we did the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, we talked about what it's like to be um, the, the all-day workers who are standing at the end of the line, that the drama depends on watching others get paid and, and when you expect to be paid more. Um, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, there are, there are two things in there that, that fit Luke's theme. One is that as the story is told... Uh, the point of view for the reader is really with the man on the side of the road. And the element of surprise, if, if you think about it, is him watching and seeing the three parties pass him by and not help. The priest, the Levite, uh, you know, and the, the surprise and disappointment of that. And secondly, uh, the surprise that the one who stops to help is the Samaritan. And what makes that a surprise is that uh, that the Samaritans were a mixed race who essentially were not accepted by the Jews and were not accepted by the Gentiles because they were, they were a mixture of both. So Samaritans are sort of a lost race in the New Testament. And they are, they are the person that if you were Jewish and injured on the side of the road, you would least expect to stop and help you. So we have, I mean, unfortunately, the way the Good Samaritan has been, has come down in our culture, and it's so popular in our culture, and it's kind of a tribute to the Bible that it is, is that the emphasis is on good. You know, the Samaritan is somebody who stops and helps somebody at the side of the road, and we could have just as easily called it the good priest or the good neighbor or the good so-and-so. 
the real meaning of the title is that it's the good Samaritan. The emphasis is on it. You mean the Samaritan's the one that stopped and helped me? And, and the viewpoint, again, from the guy on the side of the road who's injured is, of all the people, one would not expect to stop, and one might not even want to stop. It's the Samaritan. So that's, that's sort of this least, the last, and the lost theme. And, and that also plays into the theme of, of the universal appeal and focus of this gospel. I mean, this, this gospel is the first of two volumes, um, and, and the, the gospel is the story of Jesus, and the, and the book of Acts is the story of the spread of the good news throughout all of, of the world. And it, as we said earlier, Luke begins by tracing the genealogy of Jesus all the way back uh, to Adam and Eve, and and not just to Matthew. So it's not just not just Jesus is the Jewish redeemer, but but as the savior of all the world. Um, so Luke has this special section, um, which is starts at verse 951, where Jesus, uh, where the days draw near for Jesus to be taken up, and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and it lasts till 1927. It's it's really about 11 chapters of Luke or 10 chapters of Luke. And the reason we call it the special section is that it's, one, it's a coherent unit, but none of the material, virtually none of the material, is found in either Matthew or Mark. So it's all material that is special to Luke and and unique to Luke. And included in that is the parable of the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, which are two of the most famous things. Uh, It uh, Just to, to walk through what, what this is um, in in thirteen, it, it is very important for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Uh, he in thirteen thirty three it says that a prophet must be. Uh, it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. As a prophet to Israel, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to die, and the journey in this whole special section of nine through nineteen. Along the way, Jesus is providing instruction in the purpose and meaning of his death and instruction in what it means for the disciples to bear witness to the resurrection, which will be the whole book of Acts. Um, the journey, if, if we follow the geography, which I often don't pay much attention to, but um, the journey is about... Uh, the journey seems to take much longer than the 60 miles in three days that it would that it would require uh, to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. Those of you who've been to Israel or, or are going will, you know, will come to see how just close all of these places are. It's a very small country about the size of New Jersey, and uh, so so for the traveling, I mean, there's obviously a lot of traveling, and it's by foot and. Yeah, but but the spaces are not very very long, and the way the narrative unfolds, it takes a lot longer than it normally would for Jesus to get to Jerusalem. But that's because again, Luke, as the artist, is is wanting to spread these stories out and and get them all all in. Another way that Luke, as an as an artisan, is it's apparent in this uh, in this is uh, that that the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts are structured alike in this, 
in that in Luke we have the gathering of witnesses in Galilee. They go to Jerusalem along the way, accompanied by the preaching of the word, and then his arrest, trial, crucifixion, crucifixion and resurrection occur in Jerusalem. And, and the Gospel of Luke closes with the disciples in the temple in Jerusalem. Acts is structured along this, a parallel way in that this, the Spirit appears at Pentecost and gathers the witnesses to Jerusalem. It's followed then by journeys of missionaries, especially Paul, which is comparable to the, to the journey in, in Luke. And then Paul's arrest and trial uh, ends, ends in Rome. Um, so th- those two are parallel in their structure. Um, and then finally, this, this section before we get to the, to chapter 15 is, um, is that Luke is concerned with Jesus telling the disciples along this journey about the Word of God. This entire section depicts Jesus telling the disciples about God's Word. And along the way, these are just some of the elements, and I've kind of put the elements in, in italics. Uh, because all of these are, are themes of Luke, or things that come out in Luke that that are important, uh, and we could spend, you know, we could focus on any one of these. But uh, among Luke's themes of emphasis about Jesus is that women matter. I mean, the, the Gospel of Luke is the most friendly gospel to the role of women, and women play play a more prominent role there. Uh, Martha, and, Martha and Mary are significant characters. Uh, Prayer is a vital part of Jesus' life and those with him. Uh, in, a, in chapter 11, 1 through 13, there's the Lord's Prayer and then a teaching about perseverance, waiting in prayer. Um, the kingdom of God becomes present when Jesus casts out demons. Um, the physical closeness to Jesus means nothing or means little. <laughs> it doesn't mean nothing. Um, the blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. And one of the, we're going to see this in the Gospel of John as well. Um, it is, I don't know how much, how much we actually think this way or feel this way, but there is certainly a strand of, of thought in, in the Christian mind that if we could just, um, focus on Jesus of Nazareth and if we just had him here to ask the questions then we would have everything answered Um, or we would certainly it would certainly be able it would certainly be easier for us to believe Um, Mark combats that a little bit when we realize what bunglers the disciples were and how little they understood it even though you know again they were with him for three years and in his presence every day. Um, both Luke and John make a, a big deal and a welcome deal about how blessed it is to hear the word of God and do it as opposed to see the word of God in the presence of Jesus. And, and the Gospel of John is especially this way. He's got a theme at the end that um, where he's talking, I believe, to, to Thomas. Uh, where he basically says, okay, blessed are you because you see and believe. How much more blessed are those who don't see and believe? And, and what makes that a relief for us is that's us. 
I mean, that's everybody that's come after the year 35 A.D. into the present. And it, it both shows the importance of, of witnessing however we do it. I mean, it's just important that the word and message and gospel be spread person to person and generation to generation, whether it's taking cookies to people in prison or you know, preaching or writing or just conversations you have with people you're close to, uh, which is rare, but, but where we, where we sort of give an account of, of why we believe. Um, but it's also a relief to those of us who, which all of us are this way, who are dependent upon hearing in order to believe. I mean, we don't have Jesus in the room. He's, you know, he's likely not to come back. And if he is, he would stop and have cookies before he came in here and, you know, waste, waste time. So, but I mean, it's really up to us to believe based on what we hear, based on what we read, based on what we've heard, based on what's been passed on to us. And that's, that's, uh, it's an important charge and it's a relief to us because, uh, we think, well, I just don't know enough. Maybe I need proof. Maybe I need to see him. But it, it also is, uh, it's just important to know that that's the way it works. And uh, so both what we say and what we receive is important. Um, in this section, the true disciples uh, cannot be satisfied with the old rules of piety. This is, again, in chapter 11 and 12. This is very much like Matthew. You have heard it said, but now I say to you. Jesus clearly disrupts and deepens the religious practices of his day. Um Disrupts them not for the sake of disruption, but for the sake, but for the sake of deepening. Um, a major theme in Luke is that it is it is it is a friendly gospel to all of us who need to be forgiven, and a friendly gospel to all of us who are on the outside. Uh, it's not a friendly gospel to those of us who uh, are fairly well set in life. It is the gospel in which Jesus is most concerned about the poor. And it's the gospel in which, uh, a, you know, a clear barrier to hearing the word of God that Jesus proclaims is, is our, is our riches, our wealth. And I know we don't all necessarily feel that way, but we all pretty much qualify for that in terms of the world's, uh, you know, the world's population. Um, so you have parables like the rich fool, the rich man and Lazarus, and then Jesus and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we know, is the wee little man, but he was he was wealthy. We, that doesn't make his way into the song. But Zacchaeus is is someone that Jesus reaches out to and, and brings in. So it's not that wealth is a disqualifier for the kingdom, but but in Luke, it's it's pretty clear that those of us who who have and love what we who have a lot and love what we have, uh, it, it's an issue. I remember as a one of, one of my old mentors, or one of my mentors when I was very young, was this fiery southern preacher named Bob Walkup, who uh, I went down on weekends to Helena, Arkansas, which is a little little delta town uh, south of Memphis, and, and kind of followed him around the weekends. And he, uh, there was a, I mean, every Sunday in this little 150-member church in a town that's probably hardly there, there anymore, you know, uh, but in the Presbyterian Church, as small as it was, 
you know, really had the, the wealthy people in town. So you'd always get invited to the country club after, I mean, you're visiting students, somebody take you to the country club. And it wasn't a fancy country club, but it was a country club. And I remember Dr. Walkup one time talked about one of his peers in the church. And, um, and he, he was not being mean. It kind of sounds mean. But he, he described this man as a wonderful, uh, as a wonderful Christian uh, in spite of the limits of of being wealthy, uh, it was a it was a it was a kind way of saying that that everybody who's a Christian and and is wealthy has a lot to overcome. Uh, and it that's, I've, I've never forgotten that. I'm looking at Linda because that's a part of the world she's she's from. But it's uh it and it's and with with Jesus and, and especially in Luke, it, you know, nothing is impossible with God, but it, but it is a challenge for for all of us. Uh, Um, her question is, uh, in compared with those who don't have a lot but feel blessed, is it because you've overcome the fact that you're that you don't have a lot? Um, I I don't think it's I don't think it's quite as deep with that because I I mean one of the one of the realities of of life and I don't know that Jesus says this but I've uh, You know, people who don't have much, but who are who are bitter about it, or you know, have a sense of grievance about it. It's really hard to have faith and be bitter as well. I mean, the lack of the lack of things can also be a huge barrier to faith. I just think it's you know, it's sort of like the one of the parables in here about the guy that builds all the barns and you know, doesn't want to share in it, and he's got so much grain he has to build more barns. I mean, you just think of the amount of of time and energy that we spend <laughs> because of our stuff. I mean, you know, and just the anxiety that our that our material uh, possessions, whether it's investments or a house or car or, you know, getting the kids in college or, you know, who you can pay off to take the SAT test, you know, get your kids in USC or whatever. I mean, just the the anxiety and the identity that's tied up with, with it's a lot of energy, you know. Wouldn't it also be tied to the way the Lord, you know, it's more like I idolize the money instead of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So those that do really, really well, they're they're extremely generous with their time, money, and everything. How are they to know they that good? Oh yeah, I yeah. I, mean, I think it is. Yeah, Colin. I think that um, you know it's not just people much wealthier than me. I struggle with possessions too, and I think part of it's our consumer culture. Yeah. And Christmas and gift giving. And through the years, it accumulates, and then it's really hard because you have memories about it. It's hard to get rid of it. That's what's struggling. <laughs> so I think it's you know, part of our culture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's. I mean, it's. It's a. Def- 
we're defined by consumerism, you know. Yeah, and all those ads and, you know. Yeah, I know, I know. But I, at the the flip side of that, and I, you know, I'm I'm enormously grateful for what we have, and and it is phenomenal. I mean, it is phenomenal what what happens in this world because of of science and inventions and technology, and you know, just just the, I mean, the healthcare. You know, I mean, most of us, half of us in this room, have lived beyond the life expectancy of what it would have been in this time. You know, and and some of that has to do with a little bit of research that people put in <laughs> in the science and medical field. I mean, it's it's a mixed blessing. So. Yeah, one, of the, one of the feelings I have, I'm very conflicted about this because you know you look at people who are enormously successful, and and many of them have used God's gifts to the max. Right. And 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 the generosity and the wisdom right. come from that, and I just find it difficult to feel like. Those people are on the outside right. of, of the kingdom or yeah. whatever when, when they've given, they've used everything that God has given them. Yeah. Um, and for the good. Yeah. I have a hard, I, I, you know, this, this is deeper than the, than the wealth and poverty issue, but I, I mean, I, I'm certainly a person and certainly from the Gospel of Luke that, that, I've often described myself as an as an aspiring universalist or a wannabe universalist in the sense that I, you know, I think that I truly believe that God makes every effort to include everybody at the end of the day, and and that would, you know, we think of that in terms of the murderers and the rapists and the people on death row, but but I think that also includes, you know, the people that are that are wealthy and maybe not very, you know, maybe it it does include the uh, Mr. Potter's is that it? And it's a Wonderful Life, the Pottervilles. But uh, but but I think you know I think this message is that, and I'm I, I think I'm bound by biblical interpretation and by not knowing the mind of God to say that it that it is possible that God doesn't include everybody. But I think the witness of Scripture is that He bends over backwards to include everybody. So I think I think that would certainly include generous people. Maybe it was the way wealth was accumulated back then. Well, it was not always accumulated in the right place. Yeah, and I'm not sure it is now either. We have lifted our pillaging to more sophisticated <laughs> and hidden ways. <laughs> so. Anytime in any of my classes anybody makes a statement like that assumes the human race has made progress, I always shout it down. <laughs> so, all right, one more, Dana. I think that there's a difference for me in being appreciative and being grateful. Because if I say I'm grateful for what my wealth would be and I look at around the world and I have a lot, and but it's not like God gave it to me. But I appreciate what I can do with it. Yeah. And, and I, I find that a difference. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a great subject. I mean, I'm, I didn't mean to get into that today. You just toss it out, and people start talking about it. You know, if you toss out sex or religion, they don't take it and run with it. But you know, we've got to the point where we could talk about wealth. So, some some would. So, so uh, so we'll go back to pages. Uh, 
devotional. So an, another theme of this part of Luke is that watchfulness and faithfulness over a long period of time is important. The parable of the faithful and unfaithful slave. Though repentance is necessary now. You know, these are, these are contradictory things because you have this repent, 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 but also faithfulness over a long period of time. Repent or perish, the barren fig tree that Jesus curses. Uh, Jesus' ministry must continue for a considerable time. The parable of the mustard seed, the yeast growing secretly, the narrow door, the lament over Jerusalem. Uh, the world's end is not in sight. Um, and, and that's different, again, from some of the messianic messages of, in some of the other writings. Uh, the messianic banquet with Jesus will include great multitudes, including the unexpected Gentiles, but not all will enter. It is hard to, uh, I mean, the most, even the most beautiful visions of the Bible at the end of the book of Revelation, as we'll see, uh, there, there tend to be a sense that they're, that the door is open for everyone, but it doesn't mean everyone will walk through it. That there, it's, it's hard to, to theologically say, oh yeah, it's clear from the Bible that everyone's going to be included. I want everybody to be included. I want to be able to say that. But, but even in these wonderful passages, like Luke and like at the end of Revelation, there, you know, there, there's a sense that, um, that there is some, some outness, uh, continues for, for the hardest of heart, I guess. Um, and finally, there is in Luke a dynamic of repentance and forgiveness that is elaborated in sayings that are only found in Luke. One of them, we talk about the seven last words of the cross. It is from the cross uh, that Jesus pronounces a word of general forgiveness. Father, forgive them, that for they don't know not what they do. That's only in Luke. It is also in Luke that he... Um, promises a place in paradise to the criminal on the cross that he is crucified next to. That's also only in Luke. And then uh, then the charge that he makes to resurrection witnesses. So that's a good lead-in to, um, to now focusing on chapter 15. Uh, and chapter 15 is just one of the great chapters in all of literature and certainly, uh, certainly in all of hope and, and joy. Uh, so in the heart of the journey section, about halfway through, Luke inserts three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. So you've got this image, this theme of lostness. And it's only the parable of the lost sheep that's found anywhere else, and that's in Matthew uh, Matthew 18:24. In the context of these parables, the Pharisees and scribes, the religious officials, have been irritated by Jesus' association with sinners, by those who are lost. And these parables emphasize the joy and openness of those who are found, those who return, and are uh, certainly a defense on Jesus' part of his association with people in those categories. So let's, the, the first two are very short, and I will just read them, um, but, but they're a good introduction and a context for the parable of the prodigal or the lost son. So first is the parable of the lost sheep. So Jesus, in, in uh, Luke 15, 3, 
So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Which one of you? Well, most of us don't do that. I mean, one sheep leaving ninety-nine behind, it's already a fantastic uh, parable. When you have, When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And this is the, the source of the Sunday school picture we have of Jesus carrying the lost sheep across his shoulder, which many of us grew up with. And uh, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so says Jesus, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one measly sinner who repents than over 99 stuffy Presbyterians who need <laughs> no repentance. So that's the first parable. It doesn't? Wayne, you're taking the Greek. Doesn't it say that, the Greek? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Not Wayne, but... <laughs> Richard, <laughs> so you probably know Greek too, Wayne. So, all right, all right, all right. So that's the first one. Now the second one is even more fantastic. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she sends out engraved invitations to all of her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. You're going to go to that part? Come on. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It would work better if we substituted earring. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Or, or much better, wedding ring, <laughs> engagement ring, right? <laughs> so, But the sweeping of the house, you know, it's just great. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, so we've got the lostness. Right. <laughs> Everybody was laughing but her. <laughs> so, uh, so we've got, you know, this, this is the setup. You've got... Uh, something valuable lost, but it's one of many. You've got an effort in finding, and you've got a huge celebration upon its return. I mean, that's what's common, you know, in, in these. So then we get the parable of the lost son. And I'm going to do it. I don't, I don't know what I've, I think I printed the whole thing in there. What have I printed? No, you got to follow this one on your, you gotta, you gotta open your Bibles and follow this one. And part of it's because I ad lib a lot on this. And, uh, I can only say that, I mean, it, it, it's a very, it's a very powerful parable. And it's the one, it is one of the ones that I had said earlier. Uh, the three characters are so well developed in it. The father, the prodigal, and the older brother that you can truly, you know, once you're about 40 or 50, you have probably been all three at some time, sometime in your life, especially if you are a parent, especially if you're a parent of two kids. I mean, you're going to have been 
Um, and and but again, Presbyterians are never prodigals, so we can't really identify with that. But when we get to the older brother, we are home free, you know. So anyway, let's go. Then Jesus says, "There was a man who had two sons." It's interesting. What is what is the parable about? It's about a man, and it's about two sons. Two sons. It's. You know, why it's named the parable of the prodigal son, I don't know, other than alliteration sounds good. But it's about a man with two sons. The younger of them says to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. Not entitled to it now. Uh, It's a demand for inheritance now. And for some unknown and God-forsaken reason... The father divides his property between them. Why on earth did the father do this? Empty the trust fund for the younger child who wants to leave home. Was this one of those kids in the family who had demanded and demanded and demanded and demanded and demanded and and just worn down? There are parents who do things they don't believe in just because they're tired. Just because it has come so ferociously and so long and you just don't have the will to say no. But there's also the obvious answer that if the father hadn't done this, you would have no parable. Well, that's true, too. It does make... And, and, and Luke 15 would be very short. <laughs> so, thank you, Phil. <laughs> so, a few days later, you think about Paige waiting. I mean, how long did those days seem to the father and to the son? What happened? In those few days, what words were spoken? Did the father help him pack? Was this the joy of sending a kid off to college? No. There was a, in in a church I served in college, um, there was it was a Presbyterian church in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood, kind of a, a, you know, an affluent suburban church. And there was a man in that congregation who, if you met him at the party, I mean, you know, I'm, I was a college intern there, but but his way of handling this situation in his life was it was whoever he met, he introduced himself as saying, uh, "I am the father of a son who." Uh, got drunk and struck a Jewish family walking to the synagogue and is in prison. I mean, he had to just say that because he knew everybody knew it. And and you know how in how many families this is a slightly different take on it, but in how many families it's not many, but it happens. Do you pack up? One child to go to college and the next child to go to prison. 
you know, a man had two sons. And nobody can explain the mystery of why one demanded his inheritance early and why the other worked in the field over and over and over. Nobody knows why they don't turn out the same or why they turn out so differently. So, what was it like at the dinner table, those days when the three of them were still together? Did the kid leave his room neat or abandoned like an angry renter who had been evicted? It is the longest several days of the father's life. The younger son gathered all that he had. Legos, sports trophies, Michael Jordan posters. You can see how long I've been telling this story. (laughs) CDs and recording equipment and video games and vampire posters. Everything that he had. He took off the wall and took with him. And he traveled to, you know, I like another translation better. He traveled to a far country. It says distant country. I like a far country. How far away does a country have to be to be a far country? Not very far. It's not necessarily a geographical term. A far country can be down the street and around the corner with the wrong set of people, as we all told our kids. And there, in that far country, he squandered his property in, again, I don't like your translation, dissolute living. The translation I like is loose living, which is what one of the others is. Um, In the same sentence, he travels, uh, squanders, and then spends everything. How big was the trust fund? How quickly did it disappear? What takes longer, to build up a trust fund or to go through a trust fund? It is amazing. It is amazing how we don't have to wait, Paige, to spend. Okay? I mean, once you got it, man, those things can disappear quickly. And then in the next verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. First time, first time he'd ever been in need. He began to be in need. He had never been in need before. And just think of ah, all the things we experience in that far country. So, he went out and he hired himself to one of the citizens of that country. What a novel idea. He went out and got a job. And that citizen sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, feeding the pigs is a pretty yucky profession. Because you prepare the food to go in one end and you clean up what comes out of the other end. But feeding the pigs for a Jew is a violation. You don't eat pork or touch pork, even in the far country. 
He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating. And it is true, as we know from scenes we've seen, that people who are truly hungry will eat almost anything. We can laugh about pig food that our kids throw back at us, but we don't even want to think of the other options. And, Luke says, no one gave him anything. Again, from the father's viewpoint, probably for the first time in his life. But, but's important, when he came to himself, he said, and notice the nature of his coming to himself. How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, but I am here dying of hunger. His coming to himself is a matter of hunger. It's not of guilt. It's not of repentance. It's hunger. And so he says, I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him. He thinks about what he's going to say to his father. And what he says is this. What he plans to say is this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's what he is going to say to his father. A minister that is actually the same minister I just told you about that I I heard preach this sermon at Montreat uh, called this his pitiful little memorized speech. He's walking home and he's hungry and he's over and over and over reciting his pitiful little memorized speech to make sure he gets it right. But you know that. I mean, you know when you're when you're going in for a conversation you don't want to have, you memorize what you're going to say. And then we then we switch to the father. But while the son was still far off. While, 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 while. How much time has passed? Was it weeks? Was it months? Was it years? There was a family in my Iowa church, an older couple. I mean, they were probably 70s. They were probably in the early 70s when, when this, when I, I learned this about them. Late 60s, early 70s. Um, yeah, so almost 30 years ago. But they had a son who had run away to San Francisco, you know, in the, in the late 60s, just like so many kids did. And they had not had contact with that son for about 30 years. And they had, you know, at one point, they had a report from somebody that he had been cited. But this was pre-cell phones, you know. I mean, it, and it was, and actually the, you know, both, I mean, I, when I was there, the woman died and then, then the man died after I left and came here. But, you know, but she died never, never, never having that resolved. You know, never seeing him again, never hearing from him again, never knowing anything about him other than seven or eight years earlier, somebody had verified that he was alive, you know. So how long? So what's worse? 
a child who has died or a child who is missing. You think about the people. You may have known some. You may be, you may be some. You know, people whose kids are lost in hiking accidents, MIAs, hostage situations, kidnapped victims, runaways. Uh, you know, it is torture to not know or to not be sure, to not be sure. So what does the father experience during this time? The room is empty. Every parent that loses a child has to pass by an empty room if they if they even stay in the house. Were the things on the wall? Had the father gone in and cleaned the room up or like so many parents who lose a child, had he left it just the way it was? And what has he done about the phone calls, which is all the form of communication there was in the first century. No, he's not here. Well, actually, he doesn't live here anymore. No, I don't know his address or phone number. And what do you do about the middle of the night phone calls from drunk male friends, from drunk female friends? from drug dealers, from debt collectors, and hang-up calls? And what do you do about the mail piled up on the table next to the stairwell? But while he was still far off, however long that while left, his father saw him. How many times had that father been out on the front porch working in the yard and experienced false starts? How many people coming up the road only to disappoint him when it became clear that they were not his son but the UPS driver, the person reading the electrical meter? How many times hot and tired and thirsty and grieving had the father seen a mirage. But the father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion. Not joy. Not relief. Not anger. But compassion. I, I don't know what you or I would feel in that situation. Maybe a lot of things. And what does this father do? He runs. I don't care how old he is. He runs and puts his arm around his son and kisses him. Was this the first time he moved with any kind of speed since the day his son had left? And disappeared over the horizon. And so now we switch back to the son. Who begins to recite his pitiful little memorized speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, notice, interrupts him. He doesn't get the speech finished. 
The father cuts him off mid-speech and orders the servants, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. These are signs of royalty, of coronating a new king. Robe, the ring of rule and responsibility, and sandals. It's a coronation service. And get the fatted calf and kill it. That is the most lavish meal. It is caviar and lobster. And let us eat and celebrate. All the father's, I mean the father's immediate reaction is to celebrate. And remember that in Luke, all things good occur around a table. There's always a meal in Luke. They must have weighed 400 pounds, all of them. So, because they walked, yeah, they walked a lot. So, and why do we celebrate? Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, just like the coin and the sheep before us. Notice he says first, dead and alive, which is the most intense. And then he says, lost and found, which is the least intense. But it all has linkages to the prior two parables. And they began to celebrate. Again, the translation I like better is they began to make merry. I think the translation I'm referring to is the New English. So it's got these Britishisms that really work here for some reason. They began to make merry. So that's the first scene. I'm tempted to make you take the break, but we won't do that. Let's just keep going, all right, so we can take a break after this. The next scene, the camera shifts. Now, 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 let's get serious. The elder son was in the field. It is very easy for us to kick this guy around the sanctuary and criticize him. But he is the Presbyterian, the oldest child, the Pharisee. He's always in the field. He's always doing his homework before it is due. He is always at the top of his class. He is always attending church and Sunday school and youth fellowship and youth choir. He is always filling those college applications in on time and not cheating to get into the best colleges. Yeah, and he thinks life should be fair. He never has kept the car out too late. He has never had a wreck on his 16th birthday. Some of this is a little self-revelatory. He's never, as we used to say in my time, gotten a girl pregnant. I love using these old-fashioned isms that you can't use anymore. And he was always, always, always working in the field. It's easy to kick this guy around the sanctuary to find all kinds of faults with him, but let us think for a minute. What is it like to be the child in the family where all the family's time, emotional energy, worry, money, and attention goes to the one who is not well? The one who's in trouble all the time. The one who never gets his homework done. The word, the one who's ADHD. 
the one who gets arrested, the one who gets suspended from school, the one who's involved with drugs and alcohol, the one who have, who parents have to go out in the middle of the night to pick up at the ER to commit to detox. The one where mom has to go to work to pay all the counseling bills. The one where parents don't go to your game because they're again in court with your brother. You know that you cannot be responsible for him. You're tired of sending some of your money, money that's been a part of you and your spouse's earnings, money that you would like to have for your own children, to your sibling who's an adult and isn't responsible. You don't call home to your parents as much because you see what your sibling is doing to them. And you are afraid of what you will say. And it will just put more pressure on them. When I went to Wichita Falls, uh, as a youth pastor, the senior pastor had two kids, a big burly athletic son who was uh, 11 or 12 at the time and a, well no, he was older than that. He was about 15 or 16 because the, the young girl, the daughter had just gone into a middle school youth group which I was responsible for and she was a child who had been born with, it's got a fancy name, but it's brittle brittle bones syndrome. Uh, by the time I got there, she'd had 13 surgeries in 13 years. Uh, but she was a feisty human being who got around on a skateboard. I mean, at everything. I mean, she was, she was something. And, uh, right after, two years after I moved here and, and married Maggie, this, uh, girl who was, you know, by now, 35 or so, uh, on Facebook, I guess it was Facebook, I don't know, Facebook didn't exist, but contacted us uh, because she had uh, gotten a bachelor's degree at the University of Texas, a master's degree at North Texas, and was the patient advocate at the Shriners Hospital in Dallas, which is where she had all those operations. And all I can say is I wouldn't want to be on the other side of her (laughs) as a patient advocate. And she was up here for a conference. She ended out having married a guy from Springfield who was in the military. And she was up here at the Adams Mark for a conference uh, on patient advocates uh, and had her second child with her. I mean, that's how that's how determined this, this kid was. But, I mean, that family, you know, the, the division between the son who was normal and the younger daughter who consumed everything. No fault of her own and no negativity. But at a at a high school basketball game, somebody I mean Ed was the son was the strong, silent type. He never got in trouble, but he never said anything. You could never get to know him. And at, and at a basketball game, somebody popped off to him, and he got up, all six foot four of him, and just like picked this kid up and you know, threw him a couple of levels down the bleacher. I don't think it was a serious injury and got suspended from school. But, you know, you, you just wonder how much 16, 17, 18 years of anger, of being the older brother, 
that he never had a safety valve to release it. And he released it on that day on some poor chap, you know, who has probably never forgotten it. But anyway, I think Ed's turned out okay. But that's that's part of the older brother. But when this older brother comes into the field and approaches the house, notice what the text says. He hears music and dancing. White tablecloths. Valet parking. Black SUVs bringing dignitaries. Silhouettes of men and women dancing across the living room window. The clang of champagne glasses. And neighbors who all happened to have come outside that day as the party was beginning. This is kind of like the Great Gatsby Party. Neighbors who had come out and decided all at the same time to mow their grass. (laughs) One blade at a time. (laughs) So this older brother calls one of the slaves and asks him, what's going on? I bet he did. The slave replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in to that party in that house. Was that an act of integrity? Was it an act of pouting? Was it an act of anger? Was it an act of protest? It's the same thing that Jonah did at the end of the book of Nineveh. So we, what, what's he thinking? So his father, for the second time in the parable, comes out to one of his sons and begins to plead with him. Remember, a certain man had two sons. That's how it starts. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. That's pretty strong language. And I have never disobeyed your command, work in obedience. And you have never even given a young goat, better yet a fatted calf, so that I might celebrate my friend with my friends. And we are tempted to say as if he had any. But when this son, notice, of yours comes back, you kill the fatted calf. No, I'm, I skipped a page here. I knew it didn't end there. When this son of yours comes back, notice the of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. Now, did I miss something? Was there anything about the prostitutes? In the, I mean, maybe loose living covers a multitude of sins. But notice how immediately the mind of the accuser goes to sex. I think it's possible to go to, to Las Vegas and not have a prostitute. Isn't it? I don't know. I've never been there. I don't know. Raise your hand if you've been to Las Vegas. <laughs> Keep it. Raise your hand if you haven't engaged a prostitute. <laughs> but just notice that the mind immediately goes to sex, who has devoured, devoured your property with prostitutes. 
and you kill the fatted calf for him. You no probation? No conditions? No low interest long term loan to pay it all back? Shouldn't the son have come home and crawled under a rock? Not gone to a party? Come on. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Yes and yes, but so what? But we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to. Some of us, like me, are celebrationally challenged. <laughs> but, but there are some events that are worth celebrating and that, in fact, have to be celebrated, no matter what they cost. And maybe weddings or births or retirements or sobriety markers or return from deployment or release from prison is one of those. We had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. And guess what? That's the end of the parable. Stops right there. And so the question is, does the older brother go in to the party? We don't know. Because if Luke wrote that ending, the dog ate that part of his homework. So it floats out there. For us to answer the question, would you go in to that party? You know, I know we often malign the older brother. And I want to just, you were pulling this apart so beautifully <laughs> and mentioning things like the father saw his son coming with compassion. Right. And I think that when you're seeing somebody and you feel compassion, my sense is that you have a sense of how that person is feeling or how he was walking or how he was looking. And that maybe makes that. The second thing is that um, the brother in the field didn't have a chance to see the brother come home. No one even got him to invite him to the field. That's true. Nobody even even sent for him, yeah. He was so long in the field that the fatted calf had been killed, that all this other stuff had happened. So he was out in the field a long time. So you say, how long was the son away? How long, how long was, was the brother, brother working? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so um, then also he was the one that was living with the father. And he saw all oh, the yeah. things that the That's father a whole good point. So perhaps the son had compassion for the father. And then when he sees him <laughs> doing the fatted calf and everything, is he thinking, did this clown come home and actually swindle right. another thing out right. of my phone? Is he going to be gone tomorrow? So, you know, I feel like if we're going to look at all the people and identify with all the people, we have to have compassion, not just what's yes. fair or what we understand and so forth. I think that we're And so in my answer, my answer is he did end up going into the party. You like he that's great, yeah. And he eventually that's believed good. that he in fact was remorseful, and that was his brother. 
That's great. You're going to have a chance to answer this in your group, I think. That's great, Dana. I mean, it gets the imagination going. All right, Wayne, and then I'll just do in order Wayne, and then Marianne, and then Phil. Well, he's with me, right. Right. That I hadn't given away to your brother. <laughs> Yeah. He said, everything I had is yours. So the father's love included both the brothers. Yeah. So at that the point, certain man had two sons. So at that point, the ball is in that older brother's court. <laughs> right. You have everything and then some that that younger brother has. So what's going on with this attitude? Yeah. Marianne. I mean, in the original translation, do they use, do they use the verb are? You are with me, or is that what's used? Because that implies to me you're with me now, you're with me in the future. You are always here. They, they don't use the verb you were with me in the mm. past. You know what I'm saying? I would just assume that they do. Richard's studying New Testament Greek now. <laughs> He'll look it up. Yeah. Yeah, you are with me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Okay, Phil. Needless to say, I'm contrary. <laughs> but you were an only child. Right? No, I'm not. Oh, you're not. That's I'm right. Not. Okay, okay. A, a younger sister, and okay. I identify utterly with the older, older brother. brother. Okay. Uh, we're, we're misreading what the text plainly says. Father, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. No, that is not the case. Half of what the father had, he's already given to the younger right. son, and the younger son has um, uh, wasted it. Yeah. Now, do you honestly think that when the father dies, that all that the father has at that point is going to go to the older son, and nothing can go to the younger son? I think it's going to go to the law. I think it's going to go to the lawyers. <laughs> the traditional interpretation. Now, yeah. If so, then you've got uh, God rejoicing over a lost soul right. who has come back. Right. And is that a righteous thing to do? You bet it is. Yeah. You know, so I can't really blame the Father if that's the, um, the interpretation I choose to take. I don't choose to take it, but... Oh yeah, it's very deep. It's that's great. One one more, Catherine. Then I'll close this. And so you read these as a trilogy of parables. Oh yes, yeah. And if they all have the same point, then 
then that second interpretation, that is the point, right? Yeah. This is the lost sheep. Mm-hmm. Like, this yes, yeah. But, so my question is, when you did this big unpacking of this, you, you read the younger son as unrepentant. You read him as having made up this little yeah. speech. And I, my question is, like, is there anything in the text to really... Back that up. Back that up, because he's, he's not saying, aha, I'm going to go back and ask right. my dad for right. money. Right. 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 So I just wonder, like, is yeah. there is there something there in a different version of this? Yeah, I, that it's a yeah, it, it's a very good question. Um, I, I'll tell you why I read it this way. What I have done for you is my updating of a version I heard a minister do in high school, and it's all the theories of you know your brain gets grooved. I mean, when I hear this parable, I hear that voice and I hear it in that. And I hear it in that. Interpret- the pitiful little memorized speech was a line from the sermon I heard in high school by a minister. So that's that's how I I have sort of an intuitive relationship with Scripture and, and not as, as exegetical as it could be. Uh, you are right. It's linked, patterned to uh, the two other parables about repentance. Um, it's also sometimes the case in literature that it undoes itself. Uh, I mean, a sheep and a coin can't repent. Right. So it doesn't quite fit the pattern. And we don't know if the other neighbors accepted the invitation either or if it was sort of a, well, I'm not going to go to that party. It's going to be a party to, for a lost coin. I mean, we just don't know. So so those are questions that are raised. Um, there was something else. Uh, um, the, the thing I like to say, and I know I'm, I'm keeping you all on, but we'll have the break after this. What I, because I've had this discussion with you a couple of weeks ago, but this is what really, what is most meaningful for me in this parable, is, is what I said a couple of weeks ago about the two kinds of grace in the Old Test, in the New Testament, and, and the one kind is is Paul is the Pauline kind, and it's really. Um, the hymn Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. It is, and, it, and it's the Paul, it's Paul's phrase, wretched man that I am, who is going to save me from this bondage to sin and death. Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has saved me. Our, our most common understanding of the word grace is that God has forgiven me and restored me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And that is incredibly beautiful and profound. The other kind of grace is is the challenge of accepting grace to somebody else. And especially if that somebody is somebody that has hurt me. And and that is the older brother here. It, it's and and the parable ends with the question floating in the air: Does he does he go back into the party? It is the same way that the book of Jonah ends, where Jonah refuses to go to the Ninevites who are the Iraqis because he does not he knows that they will repent and he knows that God will forgive them and they are his enemies and he does everything he can to prevent that from happening. 
But at the end of the story, the, and it's a wonderful story, you know, God does this plant and this tree, and, and God it comes, and Jonah's sitting outside the city, and they've all repented, including the animals and the plants. And everybody has repented, and Jonah is just, you know what it off. And you can just see him sitting outside the city watching this. And he says to God, I knew that's what you were going to do, because you're a God slow to anger, always forgiving. You know, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And God comes out and says, now, what am I supposed to do? There's, what, 600,000 people there who don't know their head, their left hand from their right. And it, it ends with a question. That's the way the book ends. And so it puts the burden on us as a reader to answer the question. That's the most powerful ways that I've related to these parables, uh, just to answer it. So, no, it's not from my reading of Greek. Okay, and I'll just, I mean, I'll close and then we do need to go to our cookie break because they probably aren't warm anymore, you know, (laughs) and then I'm going to have you discuss it. Uh, You know, Fred Craddock, who was the greatest teacher of preaching in the last century, tells this story. He taught at Enid Theological Seminary in Oklahoma for until he was about 50 and if you will remember, in, in the late 70s, Coke gave Emory, Coca-Cola gave Emory this huge, largest gift that any university had ever received. And Emory was able to put all these chairs in medicine and theology. And, I mean, it sort of made Emory into to what it is today. Well, Craddock had published his book, and he got called to fill one of those chairs at Emory and, and became very well known for the next 20 years. He said when he taught at Enid, he was always get these calls to drive out and teach or preach in these little rural Disciples of Christ parishes in rural Oklahoma. And so one, one Sunday morning he got the call about 7 o'clock. He was in bed. You know, We've had a men's Sunday school class that's been together for 87 years, and our teacher is sick and can't come today. Can you come and teach us today? Well, yeah, I'll come and teach you. What's the lesson? The parable of the prodigal son. <laughs> And so Craddock's driving across Oklahoma, and I've done that. I mean, I've driven across West Texas to go teach or to go preach in a rural church. You know, one time I overslept, and I was driving about 110 miles an hour, which you can do in West Texas to get there. So he's driving along. He said, I've taught this parable so many times. What can I do to make it different? Let's just do something to make it different. So he walks into the class, and he says, today, you know, I want you to think about the story in a different way. A certain man had two sons. One of them went out and wasted his inheritance, took it early and wasted it on loose living and prostitutes. The other son stayed and did two jobs. And then the son came to his senses and he came home, bedraggled, repentant, hungry, and he looked up And he saw a party going on. And he asked one of the servants, what's the party for? And the servant said, your older brother has worked so hard, your father has thrown him a party and has killed the fatted calf. And Craddock said, this hand goes up in the back of the room and says, that's the way it ought to be. (laughs) Go eat cookies, okay, for 10 minutes. (laughs) 
Right, that's true. We'll have a parable of the fatted calf. Okay, let's get back together. And uh, I've, in, I've talked entirely too much, so at your table, Wayne. Yes? It is present tense. It is. Did you hear that, Marianne? It is present tense. He looked it up in the Greek. Yeah. Yeah. You are always with me. Yeah. Good question. Okay. Um, let me bring this back because now you get to talk and you got to answer all these questions in front of your nearest and dearest friends at your table, okay? So do that. It's the last, wherever I am here. Discussion questions, yes. So, I think they're right in the middle of the of the sheet. It's not at the end. In relating this to the parable of the prodigal son, when have you been the father? When have you been the prodigal? And when have you been the older sibling? You're only allowed to describe your prodigality in so much detail. You only have five minutes to describe your prodigal life, okay? That's Prodigalization. Prodigalization, yeah. So go around and answer any or all of these, and then have you ever had the challenge of accepting grace to someone else, even someone who has hurt you? Basically, you've got until six, so answer the most appropriate question for you and try to give everyone an opportunity to speak. All right? Ready, set, go. At your table. Y'all are doing great. I thought I would do... I realize there is a whole other section of, of this lesson Yeah, that I didn't do the rest of the book. So I, um, that's what happens. But I always promise to get you out at 6 o'clock, even if we cut ourselves off in mid-sentence. Look, look at the in the second half of your handout. I don't know what page, but look where it says the Passion and Resurrection section, Jesus' innocence. I think this. I think this is the most important thing. It's page four, apparently. I think this is the most important thing for for me to point out about the way Luke ends the gospel. Um, the the the. The resurrection stories in Luke and the appearance in the road to Emmaus is really beautiful and long and drawn out. Uh, and, and you hear it a lot preached at Easter. But, but I, think, I think the theme that, that, that's the most important here is that there are details, that again, that only appear in Luke or that are highlighted in Luke more drawn out in Luke, that emphasize Jesus' innocence. That's, that's what Luke is trying to present about the, about the, trial, the, the arrest and trial. So what are these? Only in Luke does Herod Antipas, who's a Roman authority, interrogate Jesus and find no substance to the charges to him. Luke is pretty intent on saying that, it, that Jesus was falsely charged. Okay? In the trial before Pilate, which is, again, Pilate is also a Roman official, the religious authorities, the elders, accuse Jesus of having forbidden the giving of tribute to Caesar. They file this charge on 23, chapter 23, 1 to 5. But in earlier debate, 
in chapter 20 had established the falsity of this charge. So you'd have to go back and read both of those to, to see what that statement means. Again, at this same trial, uh, the trial of Pilate occurs in Mark as well. But there, Pilate declares Jesus' innocence one time. In Luke, he declares it three times. I find no guilt in this man. He says that three different times in the trial. So that's, that's you know, Luke is highlighting that. In Mark, the centurion, not on the cross. Yeah, I guess the centurion on the cross. Yeah, one of the criminals on the cross says, truly this man was the Son of God. Yeah, that was John Wayne. It was? Okay. But in Luke, that same man says, surely this man was innocent. Which is two different things. Neither of them contradictory. But again, Luke is highlighting that Jesus is innocent of the charges. And Luke's final word I mean, Jesus' final word in Luke is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And that can be a reference to they do, they do not realize I'm innocent. And then, then finally, the thief from the cross who only is in Luke or only speaks in Luke says this man has done nothing wrong. Uh, so, so Luke's just trying to say he was innocent, falsely accused, convicted, executed. He doesn't focus on the guilt of those responsible for this miscarriage of justice, but rather Luke focuses on Jesus' triumph over adversity. It's a general word of forgiveness from the cross, specific forgiveness of the thief, and shows that guilt need not be overwhelming. Luke's passion story shows the working out of God's plan for Israel, thus Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He dies a martyr's death, prefiguring martyrdom of the early church, which will come in Acts of Stephen and James. But through all these events, God's word of repentance and forgiveness of sin is preached to all nations, fulfilling God's plan. Uh, Again, that's all we've got time to cover, but you're certainly welcome to read these and do more study on your own. Uh, Thank you for this. Uh, Let's close with a prayer. and. Dear God, we've all been prodigals. We've all been older brothers. And many of us have been parents of more than one child. We are thankful for your presence and guidance and always ask for your wisdom in whatever roles we play, when we play them. And... We thank you for bringing us back from the far country. Amen. Thank you.